Hello, world. Welcome in to the In My Footsteps podcast. I am Christopher Setterland, and it is now time for episode 45. I'm coming to you, as always, from the vacation destination known as Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And this week's episode is going to be a fun one. It's going to be music to your ears because it's going to be a lot of music featured. We're going to start off with the story of Cape Cod's premier music and entertainment establishment for the last 70 years. Before it was a melody tent, it was a music circus, and you'll learn all about it. We're going to go way, way back in the day, 30 years ago this week, as I talk all about U2's Octung Baby album, which is one of my all-time favorite albums, and I'll tell you why. There's going to be a brand new top five that's going to feature some of the best disco era artists. So all those ones that made the disco music that people of my generation knew as little kids. There's a new This Week in History centered around the famous Milli Vanilli lip-syncing controversy. And we're going to take a road trip to the amazing, historic Jamestown, Virginia. All of that and more coming up right now on episode 45 of the In My Footsteps podcast. How's everybody doing this week? I hope you've had a great week, weekend, whatever you've been doing since we last chatted. It's definitely been a fun and eventful time. I always joke that life is never boring. At least mine is never boring. So for those of you that tuned into the live stream on Friday at 8 p.m., I do those on Instagram every week. They're called Without a Map. But those of you that tuned into the live stream, I believe this was two weeks ago, I kind of shared some breaking news. I've been hinting and alluding to it a lot on the podcast and on social media, Twitter, etc., that I've been working on a pair of books. One I've told you all about. It's called Photographer's America. I'm doing a Cape Cod Beyond the Dunes photo book, which will likely see the light of day at the end of the summer of 2022. So that one was common knowledge. But there was another secret one that I'm kind of I've been working on. But it's less certain because I don't have a publisher and I don't have a literary agent. So I've been kind of keeping it close to the vest. And I don't want to give away too much now, but I'll kind of clue you in a little bit more about what I'm doing. This other project that's semi-secret is a Cape Cod true crime book. And it's going in conjunction with a documentary film that is in the final editing stages. It is set for a premiere in April and could end up being distributed nationwide and such. It's a project that is very close to my heart because it's something having grown up on Cape Cod that I'm very familiar with, and I'm thrilled to be a part of what could be a big break in this true crime story. Currently, the book that I'm working on is just over 46,000 words in length, which is, for those of you that know my six previous books that I've worked on, None of them are longer than 40,000 words in length. So if you've read Historic Restaurants or Cape Cod Nights or Historic Hotels and Motels, none of them are more than 40,000 words. And the current book is over 46,000, and I'm, I mean, maybe halfway through it. And it's really exciting. It's like being in a movie, and things are still happening with it. Even though the director of the documentary, he's trying to move on to his next project, there's still a lot of stuff opening up. And I told him just to funnel it all to me because I'm not done with the book. It ties in a lot of Cape Cod's infamous murders and unsolved crimes. 
and it's going to be awesome. I really hope that I get a literary agent and I get a big publisher to put this book through because I feel like this documentary and this book could end up being the biggest thing that I do as far as writing goes. So that's that's a little bit more into what I've been doing. I know I didn't share a ton, like I'm not giving you the case and I'm not because I'm hoping that I don't jinx it by sharing everything, but it's something that's close to the heart and I'm hoping we'll be seeing the light of day sometime next year. And you may or may not, definitely may, be getting an interview with the documentary's film director coming up in April on the podcast. So that'll probably be where I really break things down. But speaking of breaking it down, we've got a lot of music to get to in episode 45. There's a good segue right there. And we're going to start off with Cape Cod's premier music entertainment establishment complex. It's been going strong for 70 years now. So coming up right now is the story of the Cape Cod Melody Tent going all the way back to when it was the music circus. Right now on episode 45 of the In My Footsteps podcast. When it comes to nightlife and the entertainment factor which comes along with it, there's no location on Cape Cod that can match the list of talent that has passed under the flaps of the Cape Cod Melody Tent. For over 70 years, it has been wowing audiences throughout the summer. The well-known acts, intimate seating, and the mixture with the summer air have made it a destination for visitors and locals alike. Way back in the beginning, though, the Melody Tent's list of performers and shows looked far different from what you get today with musicians and comedians. It's an open-air entertainment complex And that concept began back in 1948 in the town of Lambertville, New Jersey. And it was the brainchild of a man named St. John Terrell. So Broadway actress Gertrude Lawrence was vacationing in southern Florida when she happened upon a circus tent where actors were performing. It was basically a modern take on the theater in the round, which was established in ancient Rome and Greece. The tented theater in Miami Beach, called a music circus, impressed her so much that she told her husband, noted Broadway producer Richard Aldrich, who at the time owned the Cape Playhouse in Dennis, as well as the Falmouth Playhouse at Coonamesset. Being a Broadway producer, Aldrich was able to parlay his previous successes to gain buzz for his project. A piece of open field located at the intersection of Main Street and High School Road in Hyannis was chosen as the home for Aldrich's new music venture. It was dubbed the Cape Cod Music Circus and would be the first such venue in New England. It was a fireproof tent that could seat a thousand spectators and would hold events over a 10-week summer season. Aldrich would present the high-class musicals, comedies, and operas that he was used to seeing and producing on Broadway. Though they would not have the scenery due to space constraints, there would be lavish costumes where needed and a nine-piece orchestra. After months of anticipation and hype in the local newspapers, opening night of the Cape Cod Music Circus came on July 4, 1950, And this was a performance of Sigmund Romberg's operetta, The New Moon. There was a crowd of 880 people who packed the debut. And this included famed actress Lillian Gish and comedian Fred Allen and some local politicians. 
So the grand opening, the debut was a hit. And despite the difficulty of producing weekly shows due to the lack of scenery and proximity to the audience, the first season of the Cape Cod Music Circus went off without a hitch for Aldrich and his associate Julius Fleischman, ending the inaugural season on Labor Day weekend with a performance of Showboat. Interestingly, after the first season ended in December of 1950, the 10th and all of its chairs were moved from Hyannis to St. Petersburg, Florida, and would be a part of the new Treasure Island Music Circus, which was a joint venture with Music Circus originator St. John Terrell. In addition to that St. Petersburg venture, Aldrich opened another open-air music venue in nearby Cohasset, Massachusetts in the summer of 1951, naming it the South Shore Music Circus. Richard Aldrich who was a commander in the Navy, was called to active duty during the Korean War before the start of the 1951 music circus season. So he was replaced in management by his friend and New York lawyer David Holtzman. The season opened with Moss Hart's The Great Waltz, which the event was attended by nearly a thousand people on a cool evening on July 2nd, 1951. The success of the debut of Season 2 of the Cape Cod Music Circus was followed by a new five-year lease signed that August to keep the Music Circus at its location just off of Main Street Hyannis. Aldrich also managed to keep the ticket prices stable for the shows. They'd average out to roughly $1 to $3 for a ticket to a show, depending on the day and the time. And this was despite costs increasing to keep the Music Circus going. But those increasing costs began to catch up to the music circus. Early in 1953, worries arose that Aldrich could not retain the music circus site just off Main Street. And he was trying to figure out a way to expand the music circus without losing that intimate setting. But all of those worries were put on the back burner when, on June 16, 1953, a lawsuit for breach of contract was filed by the originator of the music circus concept, St. John Terrell, against Aldrich and the Cape Cod Music Circus. Terrell claimed that in March 1950, he had agreed to help set up the Cape Cod Music Circus and produce or supply shows for a weekly fee and percentage of the gate. Aldrich's lawyer shot back that Terrell actually breached the contract by not creating the Music Circus of America Corporation as he had promised. While the proceedings were ongoing, the music circus was dealt a huge blow when the plot of land it resided on was sold to the up-and-coming stop-and-shop supermarket chain. That meant that the Cape Cod music circus would have to be moved in time for the 1954 season. Aldrich had five sites in mind, but he made a promise to keep the music circus in Hyannis. In December 1953, the courts found in favor of Terrell, and this decision forced the music circus name to be dropped. Making the best of a bad situation, a contest was held to find a new name, and in January 1954, the Cape Cod Melody Tent was born. Shockingly, two people submitted the same name and were given grand prizes of two season passes. They were Mildred Hobbs and noted local historian of the time, Donald Trazer. Now with a new name, the Melody Tent relocated to a piece of property along West Main Street, just behind the former Dutchland Farms restaurant. 
The new locale would have hardtop flooring, upgrading from the dirt and grass of the old music circus. And being moved there, it also ushered in the need for the West End Rotary to be built to account for the increased traffic. A larger tent with slender poles was created. This allowed less obstructed viewing while holding the capacity of 1,100 people. Fittingly, the first ever event at the new Cape Cod Melody Tent would be fan favorite Jim Hawthorne starring in The Student Prince. And this was followed up by Oklahoma, and the Melody Tent was off to the races. With the Melody Tent established, Richard Aldrich sold off his interests in the company, leaving his attorney, David Holtzman, in charge. Aldrich remained a consultant and stayed on as producer at the Cape Playhouse and Falmouth Playhouse until his contractual obligations ran out. As the 1960s dawned, slowly the Melody Tent began shifting its attention from musicals and operas to shorter engagements with traditional musical acts. The establishment itself saw major upgrades. In 1975, the Theater Bowl was converted from wooden risers to concrete, with the aisleways being redesigned to make viewing easier. The changes over the years allowed the Melody Tent to increase its capacity up to 2,300 people, and this helped make it more of a destination for some of the biggest stars in entertainment. Just some of the legends who have played under the Melody Tent include Aretha Franklin, B.B. King, Bob Marley, Chicago, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Duke Ellington, George Carlin, Hall and Oates, Johnny Cash, Ray Charles, and ZZ Top, just to name a few. And now, 70 years on, the Cape Cod Melody Tent remains a fixture on Cape Cod. It's come a long way from the grassy field along Main Street, although some people may have ended up at nearby places like the Paddock or Mary Jean's to finish their evenings off, the Melody Tent became a huge part of Cape Cod's nightlife scene. And it's basically been unchallenged for 70 years, except for that brief time when the Cape Cod Coliseum was in existence. And you can check out episode 26 of the podcast to hear about the history of the Cape Cod Coliseum. But that's the story of the Melody Tent. Have any of you been to the Melody Tent? I've obviously been there many times living on Cape Cod. I saw World Wrestling Federation action there in 1998, and I've seen bands like Blues Traveler and Fuel and Toad the Wet Sprocket, just to name a few. But it's still going strong more than 70 years in. The Melody Tent is the king of Cape Cod music and entertainment complexes for sure. This week's road trip segment is going to bring us to a place that was one of my main attractions on my 2,100-mile 2019 road trip, historic Jamestown, Virginia. It sits just over 50 miles northwest of Norfolk, Virginia, and as of 2019, it has a population of 15,339. But when it all comes down to it, the actual historic Jamestown, the original settlement area, that was what I wanted to see above all else. For those of you not familiar with Jamestown and its importance, it was the beginning of European settlements, permanent European settlements in America. On May 14th, 1607, 
the Virginia Company settlers landed on Jamestown Island to establish an English colony 60 miles from the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. And this location of the settlement was a pretty secure spot, which would protect the settlers from Spanish ships. And there were almost immediate run-ins with members of the Powhatan Native American tribe. And it was rough at the beginning. There was disease, famine, and attacks from the Powhatan tribe that almost ended the settlement. It could have easily ended up just like the lost colony of Roanoke which occurred about 20 years earlier. And if you don't know that story, stay tuned because I visited that place on my road trip too. So I'll go way more deeper into that in a future podcast episode. Jamestown is the one, there's been movies made about it. This is where Captain John Smith, he's a very famous historical name. There's also Pocahontas, who was the favored daughter of chief of the Powhatan tribe. And she married tobacco grower John Rolfe. It's an amazing and somewhat overwhelming place of historical significance when you go there. You drive up and there's a museum. So you park and you walk into the museum and you pay to go out. But it's not right there. You have to walk this long boardwalk that kind of goes over wetlands area to get out to where the actual settlement was. And what's really neat about historic Jamestown and the actual site is there are still archaeological digs going on there. They have found the graves of settlers. They've excavated around the original James Fort, which was what was built in 1607. That was kind of what they used in that first period where it was kind of rough going up until 1624. And by that point, they were kind of firmly established as a settlement. So they were expanding beyond that James Fort. One of the really neat spots for me was the Memorial Church, which is a brick church. It was built in 1907, but it's built above where one of the original churches in Jamestown was built and where the colonists met in 1619 for the first representative assembly in English North America. And what's neat is you walk in, it's a beautiful building. I've got photos. I'll share a photo on social media, but they're excavating in and around it. And you can see the panels from the original church, and it's protected. You can't go down there and mess with it. But it's so neat to see pieces of history from 400 years ago. I won't be able to do justice to what it's like to be there, standing among actual ruins of the first permanent settlement in this country by Europeans. There's bits of brick walls and remains of forts and abandoned buildings and archaeological excavations going on. I would highly recommend if you're anywhere near that area to go to 1368 Colonial Parkway in Jamestown to the historic Jamestown Visitor Center and just buy a ticket, go out there. If you want to get a tour, get a tour. I went and just walked on my own and just kind of soaked it all in. You're right on the water. There's plaques and monuments everywhere. You can also learn more at historicjamestown.org. They've got everything you could possibly need to whet your appetite to get you to want to go there. Historic Jamestown is part of kind of a triple threat of places in the area along with Yorktown and Colonial Williamsburg. But there's more to see than just that. Those just happen to be the places that are really heavily promoted. You can go and check out the Williamsburg Winery located at 5800 Wessex 100 in Williamsburg. 
It's the largest winery in Virginia, accounting for a quarter of all the wine produced in the state. And it's more than just a winery. You can also stay there. Wedmore Place is the bed and breakfast where you can stay on the property. And they also have the Gabriel Archer Tavern where you can eat. So it's all encompassing. You could literally go and stay at the winery and then go visit historic Jamestown. And it would be a huge, awesome couple of days. Visit them at williamsburgwinery.com and get all the information you could possibly need. If you don't want to stay at the winery, you can always visit the beach. The Jamestown Beach Event Park is located at 2205 Jamestown Road in Williamsburg. It's obviously a beautiful beachfront area for swimming and wildlife viewing. There's an observation deck. But if you want to stay out in that area, you can't camp at that place, but there is camping. And I know right now it's November and it's not really camping weather, but hey, maybe you're listening to this podcast in the spring or summer and you're itching to go camping. So you can go to the Chickahominy Riverfront Park, and that's at 1350 John Tyler Highway in Williamsburg. They've got over 120 campsites, including campsites for large groups. So you can go down there and see all this, take your RV, and then enjoy the great outdoors. That sounds perfect to me. Find out more about it at jamescitycountyva.gov. They've got a ton of great info about it. But for me, when it comes down to it, historic Jamestown, the settlement site, that is the must-see place. And that's why I'm circling back to it on this road trip segment. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know how much I love history and exploring and the travel and seeing new things and discovering old things. Historic Jamestown is all of that. And it's ever-changing because of the archaeological digs. They're always finding new things. So that's what really makes it neat. You've got the well-known stories of Pocahontas and John Smith and just how the settlement grew and how it almost failed within the first few years. And it's kind of that ground zero for European settlement in North America. And me being on Cape Cod, where the pilgrims first landed, it's neat to see a spot where Europeans actually settled 13 years earlier. Like I said, check out historicjamestown.org. Jamestown is with an E spelled on it to help you find it. And better yet, go there, get a ticket, walk out to the settlement Take a tour if you're not familiar with it, or just walk around on your own. There's so many amazing photography opportunities with the water and the old broken down pieces of the fort and the church. Oh, it's amazing. Historic Jamestown, Virginia was a spot that was so high up on my bucket list for that road trip, and it lived up to the hype for sure, in my opinion. And I know that during this road trip segment, you've heard me mention Williamsburg a lot because they're basically part of the same area. So coming up in episode 47 in two weeks, there'll be a new road trip segment and I'm going to be at Colonial Williamsburg. So that'll be kind of the other side of the coin with this one. And that's going to be what's coming up next time on the next road trip as we keep rolling on through this amazing journey that I did two years ago. This week really is when I was doing this trip. And the more of these road trip segments that I do, this is the eighth one from that road trip. The more I realize how much I saw and took in and how much I want to do this again. And we're not done yet. I got more road trip segments from this trip coming up starting in two weeks. 
November is here. It's the month that has Thanksgiving in it, and there's so much to be thankful for. Health, friends, family, but it's also the birth month of the creator, owner, CEO of Where Your Wish, Katie Marks. Katie has worked so hard on her clothing, accessory, apparel line, and so much more. There's always new things to check out at wearyourwishes.com. They've got new boho t-shirts. Check out the double layer feather anklet in the jewelry. There's so much more there for bracelets, for t-shirts, sweatshirts. There's fashions for all ages, all genders, all times of year for gifts for yourself. All of it high quality merchandise created with love straight from the mind of Katie Marks. Anything from jogger sweatpants to tote bags to tabletop fountains and there's always new stuff coming out. Whatever I mention now for November, there's going to be new stuff coming out in the next weeks. Things for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for New Year's, for spring. It's all there. There's wearable aromatherapy, sacred chakra wellness stone kit. There's things you wouldn't even think of. If you go to wearyourwishes.com and check out the Wear Your Wish brand, you're going to find something you want for yourself or something that you want to give to others. And that is the whole point. Giving something wonderful to someone wonderful. And Katie Marks at Wear Your Wish does that. So visit them today, wearyourwishes.com, and find that special something for that special someone. Oh man, this week in history, this is one story that I'm so excited to share. This is a great one from my childhood that I'm sure a lot of you that are my age, around my age, will be very familiar with. So we're going back 31 years ago this week, November 19th, 1990, and that is when Millie Vanilli was stripped of their Best New Artist Grammy Award. Boy, where do I start with this? So for those of you that have no idea who Millie Vanilli was, they were an up-and-coming R&B dance duo consisting of Fab Morvan and Rob Pilatus. Their debut album in 1989 was called Girl, You Know It's True, and it had so many huge songs. I mean, this duo, they were mammoth. Girl, You Know It's True was a huge song. Blame It on the Rain was a huge song. Girl, I'm Gonna Miss You was another huge song. Baby, Don't Forget My Number, and even All or Nothing. That's five songs right there that were massive hits. And by all accounts, Rob and Fab were the singers. They were good-looking guys. They could dance. It was just seemed like the sky was the limit for them. But those of you that know the story know what happens next. So during a live performance on MTV on July 21st, 1989, their song started to skip, Girl, You Know It's True. It kept skipping, Girl, You Know It's, Girl, You Know It's. And they tried to play it off like it was just part of the song. But Rob Pilatus in the middle, he just ran off stage. And I guess things didn't really click because they were such a huge group at the time that people didn't really make much of it. But that was kind of the beginning of the end. The big final nail for them came. So in Europe, they released their album. It was called All or Nothing over there and not Girl, You Know It's True like in America. In the American version, 
Rob and Fab were listed as the only singers on the album. And singer Charles Shaw came out and said that he was one of three actual singers on the album, that Rob and Fab were imposters. And he was eventually paid to retract his statement. But these things kept adding up, and it finally reached a breaking point when Millie Vanilli got the Grammy for Best New Artist, and then the floodgates opened. With all the growing speculation, Rob and Fab went to their management and said they wanted to sing on the next album to prove they could sing. And they were subsequently fired, and the management came out and said they did not sing. They were lip-syncing the whole time. And then there was the world-famous press conference where they admitted to everything, had their Grammy Awards, and said, I guess we got to return these now. And there's so much more to this story of Millie Vanilli, but this was kind of the big revelation moment. 31 years ago, this week in history, when Millie Vanilli was stripped of their Best New Artist Grammy Award. And it's now time for a special new time capsule, like I had promised on last week's episode. We are going back to the birth date of my mom, Laurie, so she can remember what was going on the day that she came into this world, November 14th, 1957. The number one song was Jailhouse Rock by Elvis Presley. The song was released in the film of the same name, Jailhouse Rock, and it was number one for seven weeks. The song is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's routinely considered one of the top 100 songs ever written. And if you're wondering, the movie Jailhouse Rock made $4 million at the box office on a budget of $1 million and currently has an 80% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So I guess it did pretty well. The number one movie was Pal Joey. It starred Rita Hayworth, Kim Novak, and Frank Sinatra. It's loosely based on the Rodgers and Hart musical play of the same name, and it included the famous Lady is a Tramp song by Frank Sinatra, and Sinatra even won the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy. It made $7 million total on a budget of $3 million, and it, just like Elvis's Jailhouse Rock, has an 80% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The number one TV show was the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour. Interestingly, this was a comedy variety show, but it wasn't a serial program. It was more like one-offs. So they did 13 different episodes. And this was the first one in November 1957, with the last one coming in April 1960. Obviously, it starred real-life husband and wife Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, who had become world-famous on the I Love Lucy show. They were popular, but it was also they were kind of the replacement for I Love Lucy, where it went from being the sitcom to these specials. They were kind of a compromise because the cast from I Love Lucy were getting tired of the weekly grind of doing the TV show. So these one-off comedy variety shows were kind of the compromise for that. And if you were watching that Lucy Desi comedy hour back on November 14th, 1957, and you were hungry for something to eat but didn't want to go out and didn't want to really spend a lot of time cooking, you could get yourself a Swanson TV dinner for 75 cents. TV dinner was coined by the inventor of it, Jerry Thomas, and the first Swanson TV dinners were Thanksgiving ones in the little metal trays Turkey, cornbread stuffing, frozen peas, and sweet potatoes. But that wraps up a new time capsule. 
celebrating my mom Laurie's birthday. It has passed by the time this comes out, but you can reflect. I had honestly hoped there were more famous things that happened on your birthday, but I guess Elvis having a number one song and Lucy and Desi having the number one TV show was pretty good. And I hope you enjoyed your birthday and the present that I got you. And I love you and I will celebrate more with you as the holidays go on, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I'll be back in two weeks with another time capsule and another This Week in History. But now we get to dive back into some more music as I give you my thoughts on my top five disco era artists. This is going to be a lot of fun, so get ready for that. Here we go. Disco. Disco era. This was basically the popular music of the time when I was born in 1977. And I thought, what better top five to do than some of my picks for the top five disco era artists? Now, the first thing is, what's the disco era? It's kind of subjective. You could say it started as early as 1970 when David Manusco opened the loft in New York City. And you can pick that or any years of the early 70s. For me, what I'm picking is when the disco chart in Billboard began. And that chart debuted on November 2nd, 1974. So I'm picking 1974 as kind of my cutoff date. As far as the end of disco, that again, that's all relative. You could say it's as early as 1979 with the disco demolition night. You could go in the early 80s. I kind of see it as... Cool and the Gang, their big hit, Fresh, from 1984, is kind of the last gasp of disco. It was probably already dead by then, but that was the last gasp. So we're going in between there, 74 to about 84. Your years may be different. Your top fives will probably definitely be different. But here are some honorable mentions for the top disco era artists, and they include Sheik, ABBA, the Commodores, and Earth, Wind, and Fire. And ABBA just actually released their first new album in 40 years, so maybe disco's not dead. But I digress. The top five disco-era artists, remember this is in no particular order, number one is the Bee Gees. And there may not be any band, group, artist that's more synonymous with disco than the Bee Gees. Staying Alive is like the biggest disco song, at least in my opinion. Jive Talking, You Should Be Dancing, How Deep Is Your Love. There's so many. That soundtrack, Saturday Night Fever, that was basically out when I was born. It's a staple. I talk about the singles movie soundtrack from 92 being kind of the definition of grunge music. Well, Saturday Night Fever was the definition of disco music. And they actually wrote other songs that became hits for other people. So their reach was huge. They wrote the song Grease, the theme song for the movie Grease. Wrote the song Emotion, the song If I Can't Have You. Listen to those. That's written by members of the Bee Gees. So they are definitely deserving of a top five spot. Number two, The Village People. There's another one that's just synonymous with disco. YMCA is still, it's played at probably every wedding that goes on. It's like almost cliche now. And they were dressed in the costumes. 
Back in 1999, I remember dressing as the village people when I worked in the restaurant business. I was the cop. They also had songs in the Navy and Macho Man. I mean, they literally, that's when you think of disco, you think of village people. And like I said, Bee Gees. And sorry, I put that earworm in your head right there with YMCA. I know you can hear it right now. I'd play it if I could, but I don't know if I'd get in trouble on the podcast. Number three, disco era artist, is KC and the Sunshine Band. They were formed by Harry Wayne Casey, who was the KC of the band. And they have just a huge list of hit songs. That's the way I like it. Shake Your Booty, Boogie Shoes. Keep It Coming, Love, I'm Your Boogeyman. I mean, right there, those are all huge disco hits. They had five number one singles. I think I just named them all. And Casey and the Sunshine Band, and along with the Village People, they're ones that they were literally like, their moment in the sun was strictly that disco era. Bee Gees still kept going on afterwards. And as you see, the next two in the top five list, they did as well. So we'll get to number four. Top five disco era artists was Cool and the Gang. And these guys, they're legends of R&B and disco and funk. And obviously, Cool and the Gang had hits before and they stayed big after. But a lot of their hits are kind of concentrated in that era where disco was huge. Like I said, I consider Fresh from 1984 to be like the last gasp of disco. But during the height of disco, wow, they had some huge hits. Songs like Too Hot and Ladies Night, Let's Go Dancing. Obviously, Celebration was a mammoth hit. So even though they had hits that could be considered R&B and funk, especially in the early 70s, there's no doubt they had some huge hits that crossed over into disco. And finally, number five on the list of top five disco era artists, like I said, in no particular order, but number five is Donna Summer. Why wouldn't she be included? She was the queen of disco. Just listen to Last Dance, and I mean, that song's just amazing. She had other huge songs like I Feel Love, On the Radio, Bad Girls, Hot Stuff, And the iconic Love to Love You Baby, which the extended version is like softcore porn for your ears. She sadly died in 2012, way too young. But no list of top five disco era artists could be complete without Donna Summer on it. And that's going to wrap up the top five disco era artists. Do you like any of the songs from them? Do you have them on your playlists? Bee Gees, Village People. Casey and the Sunshine Band, Cool and the Gang, and Donna Summer. How do those picks match up with your own picks? And interestingly enough, the Billboard chart, the disco chart, was still going until January 1993. It was kind of, it became disco and dance, but it's interesting to think that I just said I think the disco era died in the early 80s, you know, 83, 84. But Billboard still had disco in their charts until 93. I'll be back in two weeks with a new top five. They're always random. It makes it more fun. You can't predict what's coming. When I sit and think about my favorite albums of all time, 
the ones that I could put on and play straight through, never skipping a song and just being totally engrossed in the music, there are a few that come to mind. Nirvana's Nevermind is obvious. Michael Jackson's Thriller, that brings me right back to childhood. Pearl Jam's 10. Stone Temple Pilots' Purple. God, I'm starting to make another top five list. All right. No album spoke to me in a way that U2's Octung Baby did. And there's a reason why. I'll get into that. Because some of you are probably saying, but you preach about Nirvana's Nevermind as being like this album that changed your life. And that's true. It did. But U2's Octung Baby, which came out 30 years ago this week, had something that Nirvana's Nevermind didn't have. And that is my absolute favorite song of all time. And it's been my favorite song since the first time I heard it. And that is U2's One. As much as Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit became kind of this rallying cry in my heart and soul for the direction of my life, U2's One became a message that I wanted to carry for how to be as far as life went. And it's totally true and honest. U2's One is my favorite song ever. And the funny thing is that because I love it so much and it's very special to me in my heart, I hardly ever listen to it. It has to be a special moment because I don't ever want to cheapen the meaning of it by just playing it repeatedly. It's like having a favorite food. If you eat it every single night, it's not going to be as special. So that's kind of the, the way I see it. But for those of you that aren't familiar with it, the nuts and bolts are U2's Octung Baby was released on November 18th, 1991, which is literally the date that this podcast goes live. So I thought it was fitting. This was their seventh studio album. And by this point, U2 had been around, as far as albums went, for 11 years. Their first album, Boy, came out in 1980, and they broke through in 83 with their album War, with Sunday Bloody Sunday on it and New Year's Day. By the time Octung Baby came out, they were already, if not the biggest band in the world, one of the biggest bands in the world thanks to the Joshua Tree, which is another seminal album, but I was a little too young to appreciate it. Octung Baby came out when I was 14 and in eighth grade. And I've said it before, it's like 12, 13, 14, when you're starting to, I guess, mature if <laughs> in the, the loosest sense of the word. But when you're starting to mature and things start to mean more, you really start to have favorite foods and TV shows and music and hobbies, and that all kind of comes together. So this was the first U2 album that I bought when it came out. I bought the CD, which I still have, and it doesn't play because it's 30 years old, but still. I've said it before, I did the 1991 year in music way back in episode eight, and I talk about that's kind of the year where everything changed. Obviously, Nirvana's Nevermind was one of the leaders in the clubhouse there, but it's also there was the times I went from buying cassettes to CDs, including buying some of the same albums on both. But it was just one after another of these albums with music that just opened my mind up. And U2's Octung Baby was the beginning of when they went from straight up rock to kind of more experimental. Their next album, Zuropa, was kind of the perfect middle ground. When they did pop after that, that was way too far. And I'll do a segment in a future podcast about how the pop album almost killed their careers, but we won't get too much into that now. 
Octung Baby is 12 songs, 55 minutes of near-perfect music, in my opinion. It starts off with this slightly fuzzed guitar intro to Zoo Station and fades out with this atmospheric, melodic end to Love is Blindness. And in between, it's just everything you could want in an album. The album sold 18 million copies worldwide and has been hailed as one of the greatest albums of all time. So it's not just me, but why do I like it? I mean, I've said all this stuff, but more so it's just all different types of songs. They got straight up rock, like Mysterious Ways and even better than The Real Thing. You got slightly slower melodic songs like So Cruel and Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses. And underrated great songs like The Fly and Until the End of the World. And it's interesting because it's in a time when U2's music was starting to change and it hit me at a point in my life when things were starting to change as a teenager. So it's kind of fitting that this album has stuck with me so much 30 years later. And this is peak U2 at their absolute best long before they were putting albums on your iPod or your iTunes without your consent, which I still like the album, but still, I mean, <laughs> that didn't go over well. And this was back in the early 90s and the, the time when rock music was still a thing that mattered. I mean, today it's pretty much dead. Without the Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl, there'd be pretty much no rock music left. So it was a huge album in a huge genre of music by a huge band. And the thing about great music is that if it gets into your soul and becomes part of who you are, you can put it on at any point in time and go back to when you first heard it and how it made you feel. And that's what Octung Baby does for me. I can put it on my laptop, and I probably will after I record this, and shut my eyes and I'm 14 again, about to leave Mattakees Middle School and go into high school wondering who I was going to be, what the future held with my torn jeans and flannel and that grunge outward view, but that one love, you've got to share it, that in my heart, how I really felt. I usually say this on the podcast, that things that speak to me that are my favorites as far as food and movies and TV and music and all these interests, you may not have the same interests. You may be listening to this and saying, ah, you 2 sucks. I don't like them. But the point isn't if you like the album. The point is more how it makes you feel. And what I'm saying is in your life, you have an album that speaks to you like Octung Baby does to me. And you could tell me the album that it is. And I could think in my mind, ugh, I don't like that music. But I can appreciate the fact that it makes you feel the way that this album makes me feel. And that's kind of where everyone's related. It was a landmark album overall in the world and a landmark time in my life. And I think things kind of just combined perfectly. And it's funny to think looking back now 30 years ago that all the members in the band are in their 60s now. And that's like seen as old by the young generation now. But that's how old the members of, you know, the surviving members of the Beatles and the Stones and those types of guys. That's how old they were when this album came out. And I looked at them as old. And now I'm looking at you too. I'm like, well, they're not old, but that's because I'm old now. Whether you like you two or not, whether you've ever heard the album or not, it's less relevant. It's more of finding the music that gives you that feeling. 
and hopefully me speaking about Octung Baby, especially the song One and what it means to me in my life, hopefully it gets you thinking about what means the same to you and you go and you listen to whatever music it is that makes you feel that way because that's the main thing, finding what makes you feel good. I talk about it at the end of the podcast all the time and leaning into that. So find your music and lean into it and enjoy the afternoon, the evening, whatever you do after you listen to the podcast. And I'm going to put on Octung Baby, sit back, close my eyes, and remember being 14 when I first heard it 30 years ago this week. And that's going to wrap up episode 45 of the In My Footsteps podcast. Thank you so much for sticking with it to the end. Thank you so much to everyone who has been tuning in. We're over a year into the podcast. It's amazing to think I've gotten this far. As long as this podcast gives you enjoyment, I'll keep doing it. I have a lot of fun coming up with the topics to share, and I try to make sure there's something for everyone. Travel, history, nostalgia, lifestyle things. It's like a buffet. (laughs) Take a little bit from everything and enjoy. Find me on Instagram. Check out the live stream Fridays at 8 p.m assuming power doesn't go out. Catch me on Twitter. Subscribe on YouTube. Go and check out the In My Footsteps podcast blog. I do a lot of articles up there, Cape Cod history, things like that. The latest article I posted was about the Blue Tavern in Barnstable Village on Cape Cod that existed for a few years back, about a hundred years ago. It's a really interesting story with kind of a sad ending. Well, sad and happy ending. Visit my website, ChristopherSetterland.com, maintained, created by my oldest friend, Barry Menard. You've heard his name quite a bit on here. Someday he'll have to get interviewed if, if he wants to. On that website, you can find all six of my books that are currently available. If you don't want to get them there, they're in all local bookstores on the Cape. Find them on Amazon, Schiffer Publishing, Arcadia Publishing. Remember to support local businesses if you're from Cape Cod. I always mention Where Your Wish. You already heard the ad, my sister Katie Marks. But some of the other great ones that I've had sponsored on the podcast, Pleasant Lake Pizza Shark in Brewster, Barb's Bike Shop in Dennis, the Cleeton Anchor in Dennisport, Cape Hook Designs in Yarmouth, Cove Road Real Estate in Orleans. Support all of those. And coming up next week, so it's going to be interesting. Next week is Thanksgiving, would be a week from today. And I'm not stupid enough to release a new podcast on Thanksgiving because no one's going to hear it. So what I'm planning on doing is releasing next week's special bonus, episode 46, on Tuesday, which will be November 23rd. And it's going to be in conjunction with Thanksgiving. It's going to be places on the Cape that I'm thankful for, places off Cape that I'm thankful for. A lot of people that I'm thankful for. It's going to be one long shout out to people, places, and things that mean a lot to me. So if I know you, you might want to check it out and see if you're on there. But it's going to give me a lot more time to talk about things that are important to me. The places are going to be things you can go and see. There'll be a lot of local businesses that I'll shout out. Things like that as we head into the holiday season to give them some publicity that they deserve. It also happens to fall on my sister Kate's birthday, the actual day. So she may get a shout out, probably. 
It's also getting to that holiday season, that time of year where gaining weight is highly likely with all of the good food and the shorter days and the colder weather. And as some of you might know, my day job is I am a certified personal trainer, certified medical fitness specialist. If you feel that during the season or after the holiday season, you might need a little tune-up or a fresh start on fitness, you can find me at Mind Body Spine Chiropractic in Brewster. We're going to be opening a brand new gym there starting the first of the year, 2022. A lot of stuff coming from there. I don't mention it as much on the podcast because there's usually never time, but I figured now's the time. And I just might resurrect my In My Fit Steps fitness page on Facebook. So who knows? And just remember, the holiday season is great if you've got family and friends to kind of gather around with and enjoy and celebrate the season. But it also can be a tough time filled with anxiety, depression, stress. If that's there, remember to lean into the things that make you happy and focus on that. I say it all the time and I mean it. Your mental health means more than anything else. So do what you have to do to find that peace of mind. As long as you're not hurting anyone else, what does it matter what makes you happy? But hopefully you do have friends and family that are there for you, your support system. I'm lucky that I do and I lean on them and I always shout them out on here and in real life. And hopefully this podcast does that for you. And I thank you all who listen because you do that for me. It makes me so happy when I see downloads of the podcast, when I see it getting shared, and I interact with people on social media who listen. It's amazing. I really appreciate it. And as I always say when I end things off, in this life, don't walk in anyone else's footsteps. Create your own path and enjoy every moment you can because you never know when the next sunset may be the last sunset. So appreciate all of that time you've got because once it's done, we don't know what happens after that. Thank you so much. I will see you again Tuesday next week for episode 46. Thank you again and have a great weekend and I'll talk to you all again soon.